I'm Lynn Harder, host of Defining Moments, a podcast produced by WOUB Public Media. Humans are storytellers. We tell stories to make sense of birthing and dying and everything in between. This podcast features stories about health and healing. It grew out of my desire to disrupt the silence that too often surrounds vulnerability. Join me as guests and I explore what it means to live well in the midst of inescapable illness and hardship. Hi folks, today I'm joined by Dr. Jill Yamasaki, an associate professor in the Valenti School of Communication at the University of Houston. And due to the coronavirus, I am joining Jill from my home and and she is as well. We're not sure where you all will be when you engage with us, but hopefully you're in a comfortable place. Jill is an award-winning teacher and author of more than three dozen journal articles. She's the lead author of the critically acclaimed book titled Storied Health and Illness. That book is published by Waveland Press. She also currently serves as senior editor of Health Communication. Health Communication is the academic journal that partners with us here at WOUB to bring you the Defining Moments podcast. Today, we get personal with Jill about her volunteer work with a nonprofit organization, Bassett Buddies Rescue. In a recently published article, Jill takes readers into the trauma-filled world of animal rescue. Jill, you write with raw honesty about the emotion work that is involved in animal rescue efforts. And this really parallels the emotion work among frontliners in general. At the same time, you offer us a hopeful vision of how to be resilient in the midst of compassion fatigue. So thank you, Jill, for your work. Thanks for taking time to to join us today. Um, It's an honor to have you here. Oh, thank you for having me, Lynn. I'm I'm honored to be here as well. So, so it's been ten years since you have been involved with this nonprofit. Is that right? Almost eleven now. Yeah. Okay, and your involvement started, if I understand correctly, when you got your first foster dog, Holly. Yes. Okay. What led you to adopt Holly? And then eventually become a volunteer, a member of the board of directors, just really involved in in this organization. Sure. Well, I had always wanted a basset hound, so I had not. I wasn't even aware that um, different rescue groups existed until we adopted our first basset um, from a different rescue in 2005. And then by the beginning of 2009, I was ready for a second dog. Um, my husband wasn't so sure, so we decided to try fostering sort of as a way to see if our home could handle a second dog. After applying and getting approved, they matched us with three-year-old Holly. She was a stray who had been picked up on the side of the highway and taken to a nearby shelter. And frankly, Holly was a hot mess. Um, She had recently had a litter of puppies. She was skin and bones. She tore through the house, jumping on and off furniture, peeing wherever and whenever she felt like it. Um, We were just so not prepared for her. Um, But she also cowered when we approached her and she flinched when we moved to pet her and she bossed our other dog around, but also licked him and us empathically. So we saw this really warm side of her as well. And we were determined to get her healthy and comfortable and through heartworm treatment, um, which would take a couple months. 
Well, um, for those of you in rescue, you know that young females are extremely popular. Um, we did not know that at the time. And so within a few days, the adoption coordinator was calling us with potential applicants for her. Um, we were shocked and unable to give her up so quickly, so we decided to keep her. We were what is known as foster failures. It's actually pretty <laughs> common <laughs> for fosters to foster fail with the first one. Um, but we had her another 10 years, and she saw us through dozens of fosters that we did help rehome. So within about a month of adopting her, I was invited to join the board, and now I realized that they saw a committed volunteer who was communicative and invested and compliant with all the organizational rules, so they jumped on it. And just as I've done many times since, when you find someone who could be a good volunteer, you pounce. <laughs> <laughs> and so I've been on the board ever since. Um, as a member, I was president for five years, and now currently I've been secretary for the past three years. Um, of all of us, there's only one other member who's been with BBR longer. Holly was number 250, and this week we rescued number um, 1,337. So I'm pretty proud of what I've helped BBR accomplish. Mm. Rightly so. It's interesting. One of the things that as a teacher I work with in the classroom and outside the classroom with students is how to embrace failure and in many ways fail forward, figure out how to learn from that Yes, and foster growth. Um, so I'm, I'm drawn to the notion of foster failure. It uh, brings a whole new meaning to, to an understanding of how some doors um, that you thought would be open close and other more enriching opportunities um, become available. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm. So Bassett Buddies Rescue is one of about 14,000 shelters and pet rescue groups in the U.S. And like other animal rescue groups, I suspect it's short on resources and long on need. Yes, <laughs> I, before our conversation, I was just looking at statistics, and I, I have to tell you, I was floored um, that according to the Humane Society, there's approximately 3.3 million dogs that enter shelters in the U.S. every year. Yes. 3.3 million. And actually, that's a, an improvement. So, I mean, it's it's very stark. Yeah. And I suspect underreporting because that does not include the strays that don't make it to a shelter. Correct. Right. And you're living in Houston, Texas, which is really an epicenter of this dilemma, right? Mm -hmm. you, yes. You're living in a place where every year um, more dogs are abandoned than you can find home for. 28,000 animals each year end up in um, the shelter. Jill, talk to us about kind of the forces that contribute to this. Why do so many dogs end up abandoned, end up as strays, or end up in shelters? Well, you know, there are many reasons. Um, first, sometimes families and communities face misfortune um, that then makes pet guardianship more difficult or even impossible. We see older parents die and their adult children are unable to take in their pets. Um, right now, especially, unemployment forces families to downsize from a house to an apartment or maybe move in with others who don't want their pets. And then there are natural disasters like Hurricane Harvey or COVID-19 that turn lives upside down. Um, 
Fences blow down, dogs escape, family resources are stretched thin um, for people, let alone the pets. Those sort of things you really can't imagine happening until they do. Um, and then there's another area where we really can help, and that's just a lack of understanding or education about pet guardianship. The importance of spaying and neutering pets, of microchipping pets so they can be returned to their families when they're lost, of giving monthly heartworm preventative. Some people simply don't know or realize the importance of these measures. Maybe they aren't aware of available resources to train their pets or manage difficult behaviors. Maybe they don't realize that they're supporting backyard breeders by purchasing that puppy at the pet store. Um, and then another reason, and here in Houston, we kind of attribute these to cultural or regional differences that maybe aren't as prevalent in other parts of the country. But we have an abundance of backyard breeders here, people whose sole income comes from breeding their dogs indiscriminately and then selling these puppies at roadside stands or flea markets. Uh, we have illegal dog fighting. And we have a lot of people who just simply think of their animals as property. These dogs are chained outside or they're dumped when they're no longer desired or needed. Um, these prolific problems just don't necessarily exist to this extent in other parts of the country. And then finally, some dogs end up as strays or in shelters simply because of owner negligence and cruelty. Mm. Some dogs are abandoned when owners move, they're seized in animal cruelty investigations, and some are just simply given up because they're sick or old or no longer that cute puppy that they impulsively bought. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So sometimes life just happens. Yeah, for good or bad. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like you do some education and advocacy work. Yes. What else um, do you all at Bassett Buddy Rescues do? to address the challenges that are surrounding animal rescue? Well, advocacy and education is really important for us. Um, we partner with other rescues nationwide to assist when needed, and we're always willing to help families um, with resources, with um, help that they may need. And then perhaps most importantly, breed-specific rescues like ours exist to pull dogs from shelters to then make room for more intakes. Municipal shelters are legally required to accept all intakes, whether they have space or not. So strays are required to be kept 72 hours with the hope that their owners will be found within that time frame. After that, and sometimes immediately, if the dogs are owner-surrendered or deemed unadoptable because of breed, health status, or aggression, they're at risk of euthanasia. So if we and other rescues can work with shelters to pull dogs that would otherwise be, quote, unadoptable, we're helping to ease the crowding, and we're helping families who want a specific type of dog more easily find them. Plus, when we have our dogs in foster homes, we can treat them for medical conditions, and then we can evaluate their temperament to best match them with a family that will hopefully keep them for the rest of their lives. So this is a lot. The, the range of activities that you all engage in, from advocacy to, to care to placement, mm -hmm. all of that service work Sounds like a full-time job to me, Jill. Yes, it is. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It also sounds, in listening to you, like it's it's work that is has a lot of emotional terrain to it. I'd like to read a part of your essay for a moment for listeners who haven't yet read it. You write, 
I have done just about everything we do and nothing I knew I could handle, reluctantly returning a malnourished stray to her awful owner, driving away from an owner-surrendered dog while the family's 10-year-old boy chases after my car in tears, or pulling a sickly, broken dog from a shelter and then cradling him with love as the vet humanely let him go. Throughout, I live perpetually in the calm before the storm. I wait for the unimaginable and hold my breath for the unthinkable. I wait for the unimaginable and hold my breath for the unthinkable. Jill, hearing this now read back to you, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? Um, well, it's very powerful and it still holds true. Um, there's a lot of suffering in the world and it's hard, difficult work to bear witness to it and also to respond to it. Um, so, you know, I wrote this over a year ago and I, I'm still living in that calm before the storm. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In your essay, you talk about how stories, both your own personal stories and cultural stories, help you to hold your own in these profoundly difficult and emotional circumstances. So I think listeners of this podcast and and readers of health communication are particularly interested in how people cope with that compassion fatigue. So can you talk to us about that argument that you make, that stories, your own and cultural stories, help you to hold your own? Sure. Yeah. I I draw from the work of sociologist Arthur Frank, and he argues that we live our lives in the companionship of a certain set of stories. And it's these stories that animate me and help me imagine otherwise. He calls them our, quote, helper narratives. Um, So I, I like to look at the ways that these stories do help me imagine otherwise. Frank says stories like this arouse imagination. They direct my focus to the dogs we've helped and they shift my outlook from the hopeless to the hopeful. When I see despair, when I see abuse, when I see neglect, I realize, you know, there's always that one dog that we were able to help. We can't save them all, but we can save that one. And it made a difference to that one. So that's a story that can help me envision otherwise. Um, I also really look for stories that kind of get under my skin that help me look for what can and cannot be ignored and what to value and what to hold in contempt. So um, for that, when there's so much difficulty in the world, I look for the helpers. Um, that's that's a story from Fred Rogers, actually, Mr. Rogers. And he always said that he would look for the helpers. And I find that to be a story that really resonates with me and helps me to be able to um, move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, stories also stretch us. They present alternatives. They provide us ways to um, move beyond what we've known or experienced. And they teach people who they are. And the stories that I have lived through Bassett Buddies, the stories that I've seen through others have really taught me, you know, what it means to be a rescuer and what it means to be an advocate for the voiceless. Is is there a story that comes to mind, a particularly poignant memory of, of your work with Bassett Buddies that, that you draw strength from, one that you could share with us? 
Oh, there's so many. Um, I think one would be one that you're familiar with. Um, it's Ned, Aww. a dog that you ended up adopting. Um, I had only been with Bassett Buddies for about six months, and we got a call from an area shelter that Ned um, was a dog who had been seized in an animal cruelty case. He had been kept as a hoard by a hoarder, um, stacked in cages and garage with about 28 other dogs. He had sat in his own urine. His paws were burned. He couldn't walk um, because he had been in a cage so long. And this was a well-meaning person who thought she was rescuing um, dogs, but she got in over her head. So the court had to step in. And we got a call saying, you know, this is a dog that is going to be featured on Animal Rescue. And we wanted a board member to take the dog in just to be um, the representative of the organization. And this was the first dog that my husband and I agreed to foster that had such difficult um, circumstances. And he came to us with pneumonia. He came to us struggling to walk. But he also, when we picked him up at the shelter, he just kind of waddled on out, head held high, tail wagging, and just really taught us about resilience. And then what else really just makes that story special is that you um, and your family adopted him. And so often we send our dogs out with adoptive families that we have approved of, but then we never really hear from again. And it was so wonderful and such a treat to be able to follow Ned um, and his journey with you over the last decade and just see him thrive in a loving environment. And also to see you transform from someone, you know, who was scared of dogs into someone who just loved them. And Ned was not the easiest dog to love always. And I just, it was just full circle for me to be able to just see Ned's story from both sides as a rescuer and as an adopter. Oh, thank you. Thank you for bringing up Ned because Mm -hmm. I feel that now, I feel that in my body as you're talking about it, because as you've suggested, I had been terrified of dogs. I had had a bad experience when I was young and yet had a daughter who was in first grade at the time and a husband who grew up with hounds. And we'd finally gotten to a place where they had convinced me, mom, we we need a dog in our family. And I vividly remember being in Houston. I had been working on my very first documentary that was later distributed on PBS. And we had been developing this action um, series, this storyline called Ned. Um, Interestingly, Ned in the world of oncology uh, means no evidence of disease. And it's usually an end point. It's where people um, want to get. But, But when you're first diagnosed and you're introduced into a world of science and technology and terminology that's all foreign, um, even something like Ned is like, what are you talking about? What do you mean you want me to get you to, to, to get to Ned? And in our documentary, we we had a family who, who thought that was so um, foreign and hilarious that to every chemotherapy treatment, they dressed up an ape and they named it Ned and Ned went with the Boyds to, to chemo and they dressed Ned up right for um, Memorial day and, 
and Halloween and and they had a buckeye outfit for Ned, but it was their it was their way of coping with this really life-changing diagnosis and life-changing reality. And so Ned had been on my mind. And when I met Ned and knew that he needed a home and knew that my family um, really, really was called to do that, it just, it felt like a divine intervention. It it felt like this was meant to be. And um, now three Basset Hounds later, (laughs) (laughs) we really appreciate everything that you do. And and I can tell you that in many ways, um, Ned saved us as, as much as, as much as, um, we might've saved him. And you actually speak to this, um, in your story. What do you, I want to go back to it. You say who rescued who is a common trope. And it's used to story those experiences of the mischievous, the ugly, the broken dogs who ultimately heal what is broken in us. Yeah. And while that might seem trite, you talk about that as, again, another story, another companion that you take with you that helps you to to be resilient in the midst of compassion fatigue. Yes. You know, an important part of rescue work is changing public perceptions, and people often equate a shelter or a rescue dog with damaged goods. They're destructive, they're sick, they're ill-mannered. We'd be better off starting with a puppy from scratch. Um, But really, one of the reasons that they may be, quote, damaged is because we're the ones who have let them down. And Actually, when you look at them, they're really not so damaged. They're so willing to love and trust again. They're so resilient despite any past traumas. And it's inspiring. And some of them may take a little longer and a lot of patience for them to relax and for their personalities to shine through. But it's also very rewarding. Um, Dogs give so much of themselves to us. And so I think it's nice to be able to flip the script and acknowledge that we're damaged and in need too, that we're not the lone hero in these stories. Um, So when I see the Who Rescued Who bumper stickers or t-shirts, I I see a community of like-minded people. I see advocacy for rescued pets. And I see a testament to the human-animal bond, which I think is just so lovely and so needed. Hi, folks. Lynn breaking in for just a second. We've been talking to Dr. Jill Yamasaki, an award-winning teacher and author from the Valenti School of Communication at the University of Houston. On our Facebook page, we provide links to Jill's article that we've been talking about on the trauma and emotion work involved in animal rescue and really how stories can be a companion to, to help folks deal with compassion fatigue. You can also get a discount on her co-authored book by Waveland Press. For your convenience, we've placed a link to ordering that book on our Facebook page as well. Okay, back to the conversation. You begin and end your essay by talking about Hurricane Harvey, a storm that just inflicted catastrophic damage on the state of Texas. And you talk a lot about your role as an advocate 
um, for canines and for Bassett Buddies Rescue during that storm. Can you talk to us a little bit about your experiences with that? Sure. Um, well, for one, when you're waiting for a hurricane that you know is coming, that you know will be devastating, it's an incredibly unsettling experience. The news is on 24-7 telling you to take cover, to evacuate. Um, and this time, because we live on the Gulf Coast, we had lessons from Hurricane Katrina that had both haunted and compelled us to act. So while I was watching the news on this 24-7 cycle before the hurricane hit, we had newscasters pleading for people to not leave their dogs tied to their porch when they evacuated, to give their dogs a fighting chance, to turn them loose if they had to. Um, because unfortunately, Hurricane Katrina saw a lot of animal loss, and that animal loss compelled new laws um, after that. So as with Bassett Buddies, we did a number of things. Immediately, shelters in Houston started transporting dogs that they knew um, were not on stray holds, you know, that had been turned in by owners out of state to um, states that had more rooms. That way we could make more room in our local shelters. Um, we did the same with Bassett Buddies. There were some Bassett Rescues up north that wanted um, to help us with dogs. And then when the after the hurricane hit, a number of us, um, including myself, worked in makeshift shelters, um, feeding animals, walking them, changing their, you know, crate materials, just in the hopes that they would someday be reunited with their owners. Um, and a lot of them were. And even though Hurricane Harvey inflicted catastrophic damage, and even though there were so many families that were unfortunately um, upended, I really was proud of the way that Houston came together. Um, our, our fears about animals were largely unfounded thanks to all of the changes that were implemented after Hurricane Harvey. And um, we did not have the devastation in animal lives that, that had happened before. Shelters for people accepted animals, um, people being rescued by boats, the rescuers would take their animals with them, um, would invite pets to come on board the boats. So it was just, it was devastating and, you know, kind of inspiring both at the same time. So Hurricane Harvey was certainly one of the costliest storms in U.S. history. And we are now collectively facing COVID-19. Again, uh, no aspect of our life has remained untouched. I, I like to think that we are all facing this storm, but we are differentially impacted by it. Yeah. People on the front lines, people who are essential workers, people who don't have the privilege and, and luxury of sheltering in place while still having a paycheck. Right. We, we are, we're certainly differentially impacted. So I'm interested in what we can learn from your essay about the role of storytelling and self-care in, in difficult emotional work. And I'm thinking here just about the takeaways that, that we can glean 
that might help volunteers and, and others who are on the front lines of, of care? I think probably the most profound thing for me is to just look for and think with stories, um, celebrate when things go right and seek solace when they don't. My mom is a nurse in a hospital. Um, she's on the mother baby floor, so she doesn't necessarily work with patients um, on ventilators. But whenever they are able to take a patient off a ventilator, they play um, Don't Stop Believing by Journey over the hospital um, loudspeaker. And that's a celebration. Um, that's a, a, a story, you know, that things are going right. And it's, it's that they're making a difference. And then, you know, when they, when things don't go right, just kind of recognizing what you have done, you know, perhaps that person who died alone was comforted by you at the last moment. Um, perhaps there were changes that could be made. Um, so I, I think that, you know, connecting with your tribe, people who understand you, people who share those same like-minded um, stories can make a difference. And I also think stories can help us escape. Um, let your favorite stories in books, in movies, TV, this podcast transport you. Um, I've always found that that's been a big part of self-care for me. And I also have to realize, and I think this is probably true with others, that you just you can't do it all. You can't heal them all, but you can help some. And just being kind with yourself and focusing on what you are able to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And to go back to something that you said earlier, it's okay that some stories haunt us, that they get under our skin. And we can learn from, from those stories too right? From, I don't know, in your case, the adoptive family that lets you down, right? The, the dog you unwittingly send to an abusive home or the owner who, who dumps their dog. Um, people will let us down. Um, our family will let us down. And, and we can learn from those stories too um, and not get stuck in them, right? To, right. to move forward from them. Yeah. And to share them with others, you know, um, a lot of times when these traumatic events happen, being able to learn from the stories of others, you know, I would always have another volunteer who said that, you know, he or she went through the same thing and was able to give me different perspective, um, uh -huh. and help me then continue forward so that I could then share my lessons and my stories with people who needed them at a particular time. Yeah. Jill, as a Bassett buddy, you are most certainly changing lives. You're, you're changing, um, families and helping countless dogs, including, um, those that, that are part of my family. So thank you. Um, I guess, I guess the final question I have for you is how has this work changed you? Hmm. Well, it's definitely stretched me. Um, I think we're all familiar with those ASPCA commercials um, with Sarah McLaughlin's haunting music playing over images of suffering, abused, and neglected dogs. And that's a commercial where I always jump up and quickly change the channel. And with Bassett Buddies, I'm not able to change the channel. I need to stay present. Um, I need to be there for the next dog. So being able to stay present has been hard for me. And it's been something I've really 
had to learn. And then nonprofit work itself is challenging. We always need money. We always need volunteers. Um, as a newly minted president, not long into my tenure with Bassett Buddies, we went through a really tough time um, with a former member who was disgruntled, who really tried to take down our organization, our reputation. And I had to pretty much lead us through a rebuild from the bottom up. And that was something I had never had to do before. So it really stretched me as a leader. And I now do what I can to support other nonprofits as well. You know, it does, you don't have to just be interested in animals, um, just recognizing that people are out there doing good, trying to help others, trying to improve something um, for others is something that I want to support and be a part of. And I just, I love being part of animal rescue, but I also love being part of this nonprofit world where people really are doing what they can to, to help their communities. Uh huh. Uh huh. So when those commercials come in in my house, oh. I am the one who dials one eight hundred. Oh, good for you! <laughs> and donates. Um, but but I do so while also acknowledging that that in many ways is a band aid. That we also need the advocacy work to change the systemic forces that are contributing to this problem. Right. That there's a short term need, and I am happy. Um, and feel privileged to be able to contribute to those short-term needs in, in animal and people's lives. At the same time, that's not enough, right? It's not changing the conditions that lead to 3.3 million dogs in shelters every year. And so I appreciate the spectrum of, of what it is that you and, and your peers at Bassett Buddies do. So thank you so much, Jill. Um, for your work. Thank you. You know, and it's, when you think about thinking with stories, you know, that story moves you to donate. And um, those stories also inspire others to adopt or to foster or to volunteer, which then can help change. So um, I think it's just a universal effort. Mm -hmm. And I think stories really guide that effort. Preach. We're preaching here. (laughs) Thanks, Jill. And for those of you who have joined us today, um, animal lovers or not, uh, thank you for, for being a part of my conversation with Dr. Jill Yamasaki on this episode of Defining Moments. Defining Moments is produced by WOUB Public Media and the Barbara Gerald's Institute for Storytelling and Social Impact. Adam Rich is our co-producer. You can subscribe to Defining Moments at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or the NPR Podcast Directory. If you haven't done so already, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at DMPodcastWOUB. As I indicated earlier on our Facebook page, we have links to Jill's recent article. And remember, you can get a discount on her co-authored book published by Waveland Press. For your convenience, we've placed a link to ordering the book on our Facebook page. We hope you'll take the time to rate and review this podcast on on Apple Podcasts. And please go in peace and love one another.